0: morning, EP. How is everyone this morning? Ready for a Merry Christmas? Yes. All your stockings are hung from the chimney or mantle with care, right? Right? No? Almost. It's it's strange, isn't it, to be in this Advent season and to be in a celebratory mood in some ways, uh, and yet we're in a a place where um, in our nation, Things are just different. And this, this Christmas season is different, isn't it? It's just different for all of us. But you know what's the same? We have the same Savior, right? Jesus is still our Savior. The story is still the same. If anything, Advent takes on a new and deeper meaning this year than it has in years past. It renews and, and really deepens our longing for hope. hope that lasts, a hope that is stronger than our pain, that's deeper than our fears. We find that hope realized in the person of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to look at the foundation of our hope. Next week, we will look at the fulfillment of our hope. And the week after that, we will look at the future of our hope. All through the book of Luke in chapters 1 through 3, This morning we're going to look in in chapter 1 and we're going to read just verses 26-38. So I encourage you to follow along with me in your Bibles. This is the word of our Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let us pray. Holy Father, the one that has created the heavens and the earth, the one that has rescued us from the fall, the one that has given us Jesus, Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our hearts, that you would transform us, By your gospel. Lord, transform us in our thinking, transform us in our hopes, transform us in our loves, transform us in our going and our in our giving. Father, transform us in the way we live, in the way we love. Father, transform every part of us by your amazing grace. Lord, do a work in our souls which we are in such desperate need of. Father, we all like sheep walk and run astray, each one to his own way, but thankfully you have laid On him, on Jesus, all of our iniquity. Oh Lord, this morning, would you so transform us that we begin to live and look like the one whom you have called us to serve? Father, this one this morning that would preach your word, I pray that you would work through me. Father, I am a broken vessel. At times I am anxious and fearful. I am in desperate need of your grace. Father, I pray this morning that you would preach your holy word through this broken vessel, Lord, that I would indeed decrease and you would increase and all would know that this God of heaven is Emmanuel, God with us on this day, in this place. In Jesus Christ, we have our hope. Amen. Hope is, hope is elusive. It's elusive, especially when, when we have a wrong definition of hope. Really what we often mean by hope is, is what might better be phrased as wishful thinking. I, I think back to a time when I was about seven years old and my favorite football team was, was playing their rival, the hated boys from West Alabama. And, and we were behind, which was normal in those days. But we were behind 34 to seven. 34 to seven with one minute left. That's not a very good time to be uh, a fan, I suppose, especially if you're a seven-year-old boy. There were tears on my face. I was a very passionate seven-year-old boy, passionate for my team, passionate for a victory. Uh, That passion was was heightened by the mocking of my big sister. She was not kind. (laughs) 34 to 7 with one minute left, and you know what I did? I bet her a nickel that we would win anyway. And she took the bet, and my parents led her to teach me a lesson. I'll never forget that day. (laughs) The humiliation. We lost, of course, and I turned over the nickel. Actually, the nickel was taken from me. I lost it at any rate. On the one hand, you might think I had great hope. The reality is all I had was wishful thinking, for there was no foundation to my hope. No foundation at all. Wishful thinking is not a guarantee. We have wishful thinking about many other things in life. We have wishful thinking that the girl we love will love us back perhaps. I remember on a, a moonlit night, May 28, 1988, uh, we were on a boat ride on Lake Martin about 10 o'clock at night when I hit my knee and asked Sandy to be my wife. You know, it was still without a guarantee, but I had a pretty good idea she was going to say yes. Yes. We were madly in love. We had talked about this, so it was no surprise to her. Although the setting was quite romantic and somewhat of a surprise, I suppose. But I I had a good idea she was going to say yes. But there still was no guarantee. My friends, if we're going to talk about eternal life, if we're going to talk about the reconciliation of our relationship to God, if we're going to talk about the forgiveness of sin, there has to be more than wishful thinking, no matter how powerful that wish might be. There has to be more. Our greatest, most desperate need is that forgiveness of our sin. It is reconciliation of us to God. And that cannot be purchased with a mere wish. There has to be something greater, a stronger foundation. That's what Mary's looking for on this day. She's looking for a a guarantee. She's looking for an answer when she says, how will this be? How will this be since I'm a virgin? She knows that this is impossible. My friends, that's about as great of a stretch as you can get. It is impossible. She is a virgin. She cannot be pregnant. And yet when the answer comes from the angel, the representative of God in that place, her response is telling, may it be to me as you have said. Mary's in this place and she's afraid, she's desperate for hope, she's, she's greatly troubled, she's concerned and rightfully so, right? You would be concerned too if you were a 14-year-old girl today or a 14-year-old girl in that day and you were a virgin and you were pregnant. You would be concerned. You'd be asking questions, right? Sure you would. Mary's concern and her, her greatly troubledness in her heart is, is multiplied because she's betrothed. She's found the love of her life. His name is Joseph. He's a carpenter in the village. To betr- be betrothed is, is more than, than what we would call an engagement. It's not quite a marriage, but it's pretty close. It required a divorce to break it. She's betrothed to Joseph. What's going through Mary's mind at this point? She's greatly troubled, for good reason. It'd be easy for her to descend into into hopelessness. Let's fast forward 2,000 years. We're in a bit of a different place than Mary was on that day. And yet not that different after all. Hopelessness for us seems... Stronger than at any time, at least in the last few decades. This isn't the first pandemic we've had in our nation or on the earth. This isn't the first time that we've been in a place of, you know, hopelessness, earthly hopelessness. It's not the first time, but it is the greatest hopelessness we've had in the last several decades. We have struggles with the relationships, struggles with finances struggles with health, all of those things we had last year and the year before and the decade before. But all those things have been exacerbated by this pandemic. They've made worse. Depression is on the rise like this. Suicide is on the rise like that. Relationships are breaking right and left just like that. Domestic violence is on the increase just like that. Divorce is rising just like that. Things are going bad right and left. People that we know, some of you, in fact, probably have lost their jobs with no hope of being rehired. Whole businesses are going bankrupt. There will be countries, there will be countries that will go bankrupt, that will go under. Whole countries. There is reason to be concerned, to be greatly troubled. In fact, I would say that if we're not greatly troubled in our soul, then then we need a dose of Jesus-type sensitivity. There are people hurting all around us and around the world, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. There's great reason for hopelessness if all we have is earthly hope. This tendency towards hopelessness is not new. Take us back to the garden for a moment, if you will. Let's go. All the way back to Eden. We have got Adam and Eve there. And Eve has taken the fruit from the tree. And she's given it to her husband who was with her. And they both take a bite. God comes into the garden. And where is Adam? Where is Eve? They're hiding behind a bush called hopelessness. They're hiding up behind a bush called hopelessness because they're just desperate. Is everything going to be all right? Everything was awesome before that. They had fellowship with God the Father walking through the garden. They could talk with him day and night. There was no enmity between God and man. There was no enmity enmity between man and woman. Everything was awesome. And suddenly everything's destroyed. Adam can't look to Eve and say, honey, is it going to be okay? Because she can't make that promise. And she can't look to her husband and say, honey, is everything going to be all right? Because he can't make that promise. My friends, that's hopelessness. They recognize that the greatest thing they had, fellowship with God, pure fellowship with God, was gone. They need someone else to come into the garden and tell them it's going to be all right. This hopelessness that they had, this hopelessness that we have, I want us to begin to look at it a little differently. Look at it as a reminder that that we are separated from God because of our sin. Which ought to remind us then that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sin Therefore, we are reconciled to God. We're separated, but God has reconciled us to the person of Jesus Christ. This hopelessness reminds us that something's not right here on this earth. The day is going to come when we will see Jesus face to face, and hopelessness will be no more. It will be gone. There will be no hints of it. Until that day comes, there will be a reminder of hopelessness here on this earth. Even if we have that relationship with Jesus Christ guaranteed, sealed by the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians chapter one, verse 14 and following, even if we have that, there's still this nagging thing in our world because we live in a fallen world that says there's hopelessness all around us. Hopelessness reminds us that we have a deeper, deeper need that only Christ can fill We have need for a hope that will last, a hope that is deeper, a hope that is stronger than our need, the stronger than our bad days, stronger than our worst days, stronger than our pain, stronger than our loneliness, stronger than our brokenness. We have a need for a hope that comes only through the Savior, Jesus Christ. We're really not that different than Mary. Mary had these counterfeit hopes just like We do. Those counterfeit hopes would have been the same as the ones that we have. We might look for a fast car and and her family might have wanted a fast donkey, but, but you get the picture. It's the same kind of thing. She had a desire to keep the law because she knew she kept the law, that she could do everything right, that her mother and father would look on her with favor. Mom, Dad, aren't you proud of me? I kept the law. I did it right today. She knew that if she kept the law, if she did it right, then the neighbors would look upon her family with favor. My friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is evident in our lives. That love for our children, that love and that favor from our neighbors isn't built on doing it right, but it's built on the gospel of Jesus Christ living in us. But that counterfeit hope screams so very loud. In Mary's day, they wanted to keep the law, that they could be somebody. They wanted to have the most property. They're just like us. If I have the most property, the right property location, 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 then I'll have favor with the neighbors, and they will look at me as somebody. The right livestock, instead of you know mixed breed cattle, I might have you know black Angus or something. I mean, I would have the the best cattle for the for the environment. I might have the, the, the greatest donkeys. I might have the biggest boats and the fastest donkey and the, the prettiest wife and the handsomest husband. I might have wealth. I might have health. I might have a big house. I might have favor of the politicians in the area. I might have trophy kids. With, with Mary's pregnancy, that last one's gone. Mary finds herself pregnant, no longer the trophy child, no longer the homecoming queen. Her future is in danger. She's betrothed to Joseph, the house of David. But we know that jo- Joseph is going to seek to put her away quietly, to divorce her quietly. Quietly. Her future is in danger. If you're a young man, you inherit your father's estate. The land passes to you. If you're a young woman, it does not. If you're a young woman, then your inheritance is going to come through your husband. You're going to go live with him and you're going to inherit his land, his parents' land. So suddenly, Mary's pregnant, she's 14. She knows Joseph's going to walk away, and where's Mary going to be? She's going to be living with mom and dad the rest of her life. Who's going to raise the child? Who's going to raise Mary? Her future's in danger. She'll walk down the street for decades to come, and people will look at her and say, there's that Mary, the one with the fanciful tail. They're going to look at Joseph and say, Joseph, dude, you got out of that one by the skin of your teeth. Mary's parents are going to walk down the street and their businesses will never even be the same for people will not trust them in the same way and they will be mocked. Mary's future is in danger. So is the future of her parents. Their reputation is shot. Her husband's gone. Mary's counterfeit hope has crumbled into the dust. Mary's hope is a lot like our hope. If it's a hope that's based on anything else, anything other than Jesus Christ, then it isn't guaranteed. No matter how strong that hope might be, there is no guarantee unless it's based on Jesus Christ. There has to be a sovereign God that transcends all wishful thinking, all of our good days and all of our bad days that's greater than all of our brokenness. I love the way Mary here doesn't run from God she doesn't run from Gabriel this messenger of God she stays in the conversation she remains there and asks the question how will this be since I'm a virgin what courage that was way to go mayor I love her I love her question you know God can handle your questions my friends It's okay to look at him and say, I don't understand this pandemic. I don't understand what to do next. I don't understand the struggle in my own heart. It's okay to look at God and say, I'm anxious, Lord. I'm afraid, Lord. I I want this, but I don't have this. I want control, but I can't get it. Father, I know all of these things are out there and they're pushing at me. They're tugging on my heart. It's okay to say to God, Lord, help me with these things. He can handle those things. He already knows they're there. Drop the facade. Drop the bravado and remain in the conversation with God. Say, Lord, how will this be? Lord, help me understand. The foundation of your hope, like the founder of your hope, is not something that crumbles at your questions. From the beginning of brokenness in the Garden of Eden, God has covered fear and hopelessness with love and grace. True hope, hope of the foundation comes through our sovereign God. Let's go back to Genesis, back to the Garden again. Adam and Eve are hiding in the Garden and God steps into it. He steps into it and he calls out, Adam, where are you? Well, I'm I'm hiding. I'm behind this bush called hopelessness. Well, we know that's not what he said, but, but that, you can name the bush hopelessness if you want to. I think it works. I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Because I'm naked and I'm afraid and I'm ashamed and I'm hiding. God comes into the garden like a firefighter running to a fire. My friends, when God comes into the garden, He's coming into the place where He's going to begin the work of a covenant. He steps into this place knowing that as He does so, He's stepping into the place in the the journey of His Son, Jesus, towards the cross. He's stepping into this place knowing that the promise He's about to make to Adam and Eve... Will result in the death of his son. And he doesn't do so grudgingly. The founder of our hope steps in with love and grace. Go to Genesis 3 and verse 15. As God is unpacking this with Adam and Eve and the serpent who was Satan. He says, I will put he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's making a promise there. He's making a promise that there's going to be an offspring to this woman. His name's going to be Jesus. This offspring, Jesus, is going to have his heel bruised by the serpent, by Satan. Yes, the heel's going to be bruised. Yes, there's going to be a death on a cross. But he is going to crush your head. He's going to be, be done with hell and sin and death. There's a promise that God makes there that he carries out. You move on over to Genesis 15 and you get the covenant that God puts in place between him and Abraham. A covenant that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. This covenant ceremony was, was a ceremony that would take place between, between two parties. It was a guarantee, better than a contract. And they would, they would walk between two, um, two halves of of animals. Let me read it to you from verse 8 of of Genesis 15. Abraham's crying out to God. He says, "Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I I shall possess it? That is the land and the promise God has given him. God says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. When the sun came down, a deep sleep came over Abram, later Abraham. Abram is asleep during the covenant. Abram is asleep, a deep sleep when this covenant is made. And a smoking fire pot goes down the middle of the halves of these animals with the bloody halves on each side and the birds not cut. The smoking fire pot represents God. And God seals this covenant promise with Abram. God makes the covenant. Abram doesn't make the covenant. God makes it for for Abraham. God makes it with Abraham. God makes it on behalf of Abraham. God makes it to Abraham. Whatever you want to use there as as your verbs, God is the one that does it. Abraham is passive in all of it. While walking through this covenant, through the halves of these animals, God is saying, if I fail to keep my covenant with you, may it be to me as has been done to these animals. That as they have been slaughtered and cut in half, may I be slaughtered and cut in half. God is saying, I am so adamant that I will keep this promise that I am betting my whole life on it. If I fail to keep it, kill me, cut me in half, slaughter me. What's Abram gonna do? Abram's not gonna keep the covenant. Abram's not that guy. He's the guy that tries to give away his wife, not once, but twice, to save his own skin. I don't want Abraham to be the father of many nations. I want somebody worthy. And God says that's what he is. He is worthy, not Abraham, but God. God's the covenant keeper, the covenant maker is the covenant keeper. I want you to fast forward several years when when we have Jesus on a cross. Who's failed to keep the covenant at that point? Man, God has kept it. But on behalf of man, God has taken the covenant penalty upon himself and he's taken the death that was due Abraham, that was due you and due me. God can keep the covenant because God made the covenant and here in this place, with as Gabriel is giving this announcement to Mary, God is saying to her again, I'm promising this. But where do you see that? If you look back in Luke chapter one, we see that Gabriel was sent from God. The very messenger is, is a messenger of God. He's, he's from God, not just any, any angel is Gabriel, one of those that's, that's rarely mentioned, but one of those that's mentioned by name. He sent from God. He sent to Mary. Uh, In in verse 30, it says, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. In 28, the Lord is with you, Mary. In verse 32, The son will be great and he'll be called the son of who? The son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. The kingdom there will never end. When Mary says, how's it going to happen? The angel answers her, The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The power of the Most High is gonna make it happen. God is gonna make it happen. This one will be called the Son of God. God is saying to Mary, I am the one. I am, I'm the one that's gonna make it happen, Mary. The one that met Adam and Eve in the garden, the one that gave you the covenant, I, the Most High God, I'm the one that's gonna make it happen. And Mary's response is beautiful. May it be to me. According to your word, O Lord. This hope is impossible to guarantee unless it's made by the sovereign God. Mary receives this covenant promise of this Savior, Jesus. Verse 31. This is one of the most beautiful parts of Scripture. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will rule, reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom will never end. Friends, is a promise from God, the founder of a great foundation that will never end, a foundation stone, a, a cornerstone, Jesus Christ in whom all of our hope is laid. This covenant maker is also the covenant keeper. He is the foundation of our hope. Other foundations crumble, but this is the son of the Most High. This is the one that will take care of our most, our, our, our most incredible, greatest, deepest need, that need for forgiveness of sin. Think of sin, if you will, as a a wall between you and God. A wall that we've erected, by the way. A wall that's so thick, there's no way we can get through it. A wall that's so high we can't go over it. That is so deep, there's no way we can burrow under it. That is so wide that there's no way we can go around it. It is a firm wall between us and God, and there's no way we can get through it. But this Savior, Jesus... He takes that wall and he, has been, he lays it on his own shoulders on a cross. And there that wall of our sin, not in his sin, our sin crumbles into dust. It crumbles into dust. And the winds blow it away and it is no more. And he takes Mary by the hand then he takes you and me by the hand. And he walks to the Father and he says, this one is mine. My, sin, our, my, my friend, our sins are paid for. By the foundation of our hope, Jesus Christ, this one that went to the garden with Adam and Eve and made the promises to them is the one that makes the promises to you and to me. Our counterfeit hopes, they crumble. Jesus Christ makes sin crumble. Mary says, may it be to me as you have said, O Lord. My friends, hopelessness and fear, they are intimately connected they are intertwined but they are not from God this firm hope we have is from God through faith in Jesus Christ he gives us this deep hope this powerful and lasting hope in all of your pursuits my friends pursue Jesus pursue Jesus just as he is the one that is pursuing you it's amazing if you think about it there was that time, 33 years later, when Jesus would be in a garden and he would say something similar to what Mary said. And she said, I am the servant of the Lord, may it be to me according to your word. So in the garden of the Gethsemane, Jesus, sweating drops of blood, he says to the Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, let it be so. But not my will, but your will be done. Just as Mary said, I trust you, God. Jesus says, I trust you, Father. When we come to this table, Jesus is asking us to trust him. In 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, Paul puts it like this as he he writes of the table of the Lord. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. To so let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. My friends, this table of the Lord that is before us is a table for those that have faith in Jesus Christ. It is a, faith, a table for those that trust the Lord. If you're here this morning you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I encourage you to wait and not partake of the table. But I would love to talk with you afterwards, okay? It's also for a table for those that have examined themselves, as Paul mentions it very clearly for us here. In a moment, we're going to go to him in prayer, and I'm going to ask you to examine your own heart and ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart as well. We're going to spend some time in prayer and have a moment to confess sin, anxiety, fear, whatever the sin is in your heart. Confess it before the Lord and be done with it and, and receive his forgiveness, and then we will partake. Of the table together. Will you join me in prayer? Father, Lord, thank you for this table that you've given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it is a table that we have not earned, it's a table that we do not deserve, but it's a table we have because of the righteousness of Jesus. And Lord, like Abraham, we would cry out and say, Lord, we believe. And you would say, It is credited to you as righteousness. Oh, Father, would you examine our hearts? Show us if there is any unrighteous way in us that we might take it to the foot of the cross, even now. Father the stuff in our world right now in our nation and even in our our city screams that we should be afraid but fear is not of you so Father we bring our fear to you Lord hopelessness screams our name in the middle of the night and bids us take refuge in her. But hopelessness is not from you either. So Lord, we confess our hopelessness and we bring it to the foot of the cross. Father, our self-righteousness. It is a crumbling hope, a wall of sin. And we bring that to you. Father, hatred, lack of love. Oh Lord, forgive us. And take it from us. Father, we give you our sin. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, fathers, we partake of this bread and this cup together. We pray that you would be very, very present in it that you would transform us by your amazing grace. Pour your grace out on us, Jesus, we need you. Renew our hope. Remind us of the hope we have in Jesus. In his name we pray.